Next on Lectures in History, Daniel Richter of the University of Pennsylvania teaches a class on 18th century power struggles among Native Americans, colonial settlers, and European empires. The class was part of a seminar for high school teachers hosted by the Gilder Lerman Institute of American History in partnership with the Library Company of Philadelphia. Well, hello. I'm here in Philadelphia at the McNeil Center for Early American Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. We've been spending the week with an amazing group of educators from all over the country, brought together under the auspices of the Gilder Lerman Institute of Early American History and its program of summer teacher seminars. This is generously supported by the Library Company of Philadelphia and the Pew Center for Arts and Heritage through their program called Redrawing History, Indigenous Perspectives on Colonial America. We spent the week tossing around some ideas about how we might redraw early American history. And we've tried to do that by suggesting that one productive way of redrawing that history is to think in terms of a complicated and ever-shifting set of contests among three sets of actors. Three sets of actors we've called native peoples, settlers or settler colonists, and European empires. Now, I it's probably obvious to folks what we mean when we think about native peoples, although it shouldn't be that obvious, except to stress that it's a plural term. We're talking about many different peoples who have many different histories and who are constantly in historical motion through this period. European empires may be obvious, although once again, it's a plural term. We're talking about the French, the Dutch, the Spanish, the English, and occasionally some other powers. Those two, those empires were in motion. They're actually being created in the period we're talking about. So it's a complicated set of things. We've also been talking this week about a technical use of the term settler and settler colonists. And I wonder if I might just embarrass somebody here in our room among these wonderful teachers to try to take a crack at, at defining what we mean by settler colonist in this three-part mix. to belong to them and not the native peoples. So they had a right to exist on that land and the native peoples were, were just going to be erased. Right. And that too is a historical product, right? There may be some people who came to North America from Europe or elsewhere with the idea in their head that this land already belonged to them. But I think one of the things that we've been trying to think about in redrawing early American history is to find ways of seeing how people come to see their own right to owning this land as something that is involved with their position in North America as farmers, as men as head of families, who come to see that they have a right to this land and a, in, you know, in a weird way, that land never did really belong to Native Americans, it belonged to them. And that too is something we have to explain as a, as a historical process. So we've been trying to think in terms of these three parts, European empires, native peoples, settler colonists. And we've talked about how through a long period of struggle and, and uh, controversies through the 17th and early 18th century, sometime around 1720, a rough balance of power was achieved between those three forces, between the empires, the settler colonists, and the native peoples. Always unstable, always hard to maintain, always multiple and in different directions, 
And again, we're talking about a multitude of native peoples. We're talking about various settlers with various perspectives. We're talking about various empires. But a rough balance of power was achieved with, uh, by about 1720. And that balance has several aspects to it. One of the important things is, to help us understand this three-way struggle, one of the important things was summed up by the governor of Virginia in the early 1720s, Alexander Spotswood, who said, a governor of Virginia has to steer between a rock and a hard place, either an Indian or a civil war. And what he meant by that was, it's always the job of a representative of the empire to try to mediate between the desire of settler colonists to conquer more land, to get the native peoples out of the way, and the fact that if a governor tries to restrain that, he might have a civil war in his hands because the people will rebel against him, right? So the three-way struggle involves often imperial representatives trying to keep a balance of power between native people and settler colonists keep them from fighting each other, but also to keep them from rebelling against the imperial power who is trying to keep the peace, right? So it's a delicate thing. How much do I let people expand? How much do I try to coerce native people into agreeing to let more and more land go into settler hands? How much do I worry that if I don't do that, my own people are going to start rebelling against me? So I think one of the things we've tried to say is early American history is not a two-way set of struggles between Europeans and native peoples. It's often a three-way struggle among the European imperial powers, their own settler colonists, and native peoples. Right? So that's one kind of rough balance that is achieved by the 1720s or so, and the governor of Virginia is recognizing it here. A governor of Virginia has to steer between a rock and a hard place, either an Indian or a civil war. But there also another kind of balance is being maintained, which was noticed, uh, uh, noted by the New York Indian Affairs Secretary Peter Raxall in about 1751. And he said, to preserve the balance between us, that is the British and the French, is the great ruling principle of the modern Indian politics. Preserving the balance is what native people are also trying to do. Okay? And he also used this phrase, which was partly in a way that Europeans are so good at doing, a kind of insult and compliment at the same time. I'm sure when he talked about the modern Indian politics, he was saying, it's what these, these people are doing today that's it's a little bit insulting to say, this is the modern Indian politics. But I like to turn that phrase around and use it as a marker of historical change among Native communities. These are modern 18th century Native people who come to understand what they're dealing with in terms of the balance of power between the European empires and European settlers. And in that sense, we can talk about another kind of balance. Native peoples trying to maintain the balance between the empires, trying to keep their options open, and preserving their autonomy and political authority through navigating a very complicated imperial world in which the European empires are being managed in some respects by native powers who are trying to keep the balance of power between them. Okay? So that's been the framework that we've tried to develop this week. And we've also talked about how in the middle of the 18th century those balances all got upset 
in the events that led up to and culminated in what we call the Seven Years' War, or what settler colonists like to call the French and Indian War. And that French and Indian War name reflects beautifully the settler colonist idea. Because who's absent from there? There are no settler colonists. There are actually no British. The war is a war against the native peoples, the Indians, and the French, right? And it reflects in the eyes of settler colonists, they hope they're achieving the goal of getting both the other empire and the native people out of the way so that they can take over the continent, okay? Now, what led to the upset of the balance of power? Many, many complicated causes, but if there is one thing we want to point to, it's the massive growth in British settler colonist population through the early 18th century. 1650, there's a mere 55,000 settler colonists in the English colonist colonies. By 1700, that's more than increased by more than five times, just 265,000. By the eve of the Seven Years' War, a million two hundred six thousand colonists, including almost a quarter of a million enslaved Africans. One of the things that settler colonial, colonial theory points out is that, in a sense, you replace the indigenous labor that other empires might have tried to mobilize with imported labor, either people's own families, indentured servitude, or increasingly by this period, enslaved Africans. All of these peoples are conceiving themselves as creating an empire of settler colonists who are replacing the native population, or rather erasing the native population, and replacing it with this new form of settler colonialism. Million and by the eve of the American Revolution, two and a quarter million settler colonists. Um, one of the important things about seeing this chart, among other things, is you can get a sense of the growing British population, the growing uh, so, um, demand for land that goes along with that, but also the growing importance of North America in a British empire that used to be centered in the Caribbean. You can see by the period we're talking about here, the vast majority of British settler colonists now live in North America, not in other places in their empire. Another way to conceive of this is to think in terms not just of population numbers, but land that is occupied through these periods. If we look at about 1675, the English settler colonial population is confined to a remarkably small area of the, of the landscape, mostly along the coast and along a few rivers into the interior. By 1725, considerable expansion. By the eve of the Seven Years' War, in about 1755, that British population is pushed up against the mountains, the Appalachian Mountains, and is poised to need to go into the interior, right? And if there is an origin to the upset of the balance of power in North America by the middle of the 18th century, it's this relentless pressure of British settler colonists for more and more land, more and more space, to put into agricultural production, to replace native people, with English farmers, with German farmers, with Scots-Irish farmers, with enslaved African labor, and to push farther and farther into native territories in order to achieve those goals. 
By the middle of the 18th century, much of this competition has come to focus on a particular part of the landscape, which people in the 18th century called the Ohio country. Roughly the area centered around what is today Pittsburgh and into the states of western Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, and points adjacent. These places are where British settler colonists and the British Empire have their sights set for the next place in which they're going to expand. It also happens to be the place where native peoples, many of whom have already been pushed out of their homes farther east, have been migrating for a generation. People like Shawnees and Delawares and Haudenosaunee people, all of whom are determined to maintain their access to that land and not allow them to be dispossessed again. It also is a territory that the French have long claimed, aspirationally at least, to be part of their empire. And so I think we've been arguing that by about 1750, native peoples and these two major empires, the British and the French, and the settler colonists of the Britons, are all come to focus on this particular region of the Ohio country as the focus of their, all of their energies and activities in terms of their view of the future of North America, right? And those things have become utterly in- incompatible goals. Everybody wants the same spot of land. The settler colonists, the native peoples, the, the empires, all of them fighting among themselves over control of that space. But this becomes the place where the great conflict of the Seven Years' War is ignited. Fast-forwarding, making an extremely long story very short, the British Empire and its British colonists briefly come to believe in 1763 that the entire continent has been conquered, the French have been expelled, the Spanish have been confined to the area west of the Mississippi, and in British minds, both British imperial minds and British settler colonist minds, native people have not exactly been erased from the, man, from the landscape, but they have been conquered in this thing that British colonists like to call the French and Indian War. All the land now belongs to Britain. A massive British flag planted across that big expanse of pink North America. That dream lasts about five seconds. It continues to be embodied in our maps like this that show the British conquest of North America in the Seven Years' War. But of course, native people have other ideas, and one of the results of that is the connected but decentralized set of wars that we conveniently lump together as Pontiac's War of 1763 to 65, in which native people rose up against the British throughout this territory the British claimed to have conquered and certainly, if nothing else, prove to them that they remain a huge part of this balance of power between British colonists, the British Empire, and native people. What results is a reestablishment of a bit of a kind of balance embodied in the British policy known as the Proclamation of 1763, which, at least in theory, draws a line down the Appalachian Mountains and says... British people must remain east of those mountains. The area in the interior is called, as you can see on this map here, lands reserved for Indians. 
which is an interesting grammatical construction because the British Crown still claims that all that land belongs to them. But the British Crown is now saying we're going to reserve this land for native peoples. And the British Crown has re reintroduced itself as the balance of power between the settler colonists in the West, in the East, and native peoples in the West. Right? Now, to bring us to what is supposed to be today's topics, re redrawing, re-understanding the American revolutions, okay, I think it's useful to think in terms of this re-establishment of a balance of power very briefly, in which the British Empire sees itself as the balance between the native peoples whose lands it says it is guaranteed and reserved in the interior and the colonists it's trying to restrain to the areas east of the mountains. Now, so with that in mind, let's talk about Native Americans and European settlers' wars for independence. I think if we think about this three-way contest, it might be useful to think about the wars for independence as multiple wars, multiple American revolutions, all of them working out within this structure of British Empire, native peoples, settler colonists. And in many respects, what we have is two wars for independence, one by the settler colonists against their empire, and another, a much more complicated set of wars for independence by native people trying to maintain their independence in this context of the British Empire and its settler colonists, right? And it's not entirely clear that their war for independence is so much against the British Empire as it is against the settler colonists. So we have two American wars for independence, one by the European settlers, one by the Native Americans. And among the things that's at stake in the contest here it's actually an interesting contest over who gets to call themselves Americans. I don't know whether we've thought about that much before. But for most of the 17th and 18th century, when Europeans, whether British or French or settler colonists, used the word Americans, they quite rightly used that term to describe indigenous peoples of North America. It is in this period that settler colonists arrogate for themselves the right to call themselves the real Americans, which is a perfect example of what we were talking about as a settler colonial mindset. We are the real Americans, not those people who now need to be called some other thing, or at best, Native Americans, because they need an adjective now, which they didn't really need before, right? But really, we're the real Native Americans, the settler colonists who call themselves Americans. So as teachers, it's often, again, important to think about the words we use and why we use them. And maybe we better be careful about talking about the American Revolution, or at least think in terms of American revolutions, American wars for independence, and keep in mind that native peoples and settler colonists are both engaged in their American wars for independence in this period. 
and maybe even struggled to find another way of using, another word to use to describe those settler colonists other than the American term they want to use for themselves. So there's a lot of options here, perhaps. We could call them European settlers, but they're not really European settlers anymore. Most of these people have been here for generations. And as we've seen, they see themselves as the genuine and legitimate occupiers of this landscape. So we often find ourselves using words like U.S. Americans or United States Americans. And anybody who's dealt with pushback from people who live in other parts of the Americas for this idea of how come you get to be called Americans and we're not, comes up with mouthfuls like U.S. Americans or United States Americans. We also might talk about peoples of the U.S. Both of those are mouthfuls. So I want to throw out a term here that may or may not stick, probably won't stick. I didn't come up with this term myself. I believe it was Gregory Nobles who teaches at Georgia Tech, maybe even as long ago as 15 or 20 years ago. The word I want to throw out there is Usonian, who is a person who lives in the United States. Okay, fellow Usonians, what do we think about that? It's a real word. Anybody know where this word comes from? Frank Lloyd Wright, the great architect, in 1939 came up with plans for what he called the Usonian House, the People's House for the United States. Simple architecture, the kind of house that a good Usonian would live in. So let's just throw that out for a while and think about the possibility that we might want to use the word Usonian, at least in this period, to describe these people who are creating the United States? Yes. Um, so you said me and those other opportunities you put out there are people of European ancestry. Yeah, these terms are always up now. Natives who live in the same area? I would say it could include anybody who's subject to the jurisdiction of the United States, which would include enslaved Africans, free Africans, all kinds of other people. But the people who are associated with that political entity called the United States, I think we could usually call Usonians rather than Americans. They're all Americans. Yes? How do we feel about what is, I guess, to you the purpose of making all of these people under, putting them under one umbrella rather than, you know, indigenous people, you know, calling people for what they are? Because African people, people who were enslaved and brought here still find it, I find it very hard to even identify Zinians. So I'm just trying to see what's the purpose of it. Okay, we've been stressing all along, there's always an S on the end of these words, right? They're always contingent. There's always many meanings of them. It also helps us to understand that during this thing we're going to try out for size to call the Usonian Revolution, some African people cast in their lot with the United States, but far more of them cast in their lot for their own purposes with the British, right? Native people, some of them cast in their lot with the United States. The vast majority of them were engaged in their own struggle for independence. So my stress of, you know, Usonians is fundamentally the people we used to call European settler colonists who are creating their own political order, which is dominated by white men and dominated by a view that the United States is the legitimate owner of this continent. 
And so in many respects, we've got the Usonians against the British Empire, against the native peoples. But they're all complicated configurations, shifting alliances, people operating for different purposes in different ways, right? Yeah, so that's what I, I, yeah. I, I guess what it is. Kind of, I feel like people are moving on even the idea of like Americans or identifying people mm -hmm. like under this one set. I think it erases people's individual reasons for doing specific things, like African people fighting with the British or African people fighting with the colonists or, you know, whoever they're fighting with during the American Revolution or fighting in the French and Indian War, it was all for reasons because they were placed in these particular positions mm -hmm. and oppressive positions. So for me, it feels like associating with that ultimately takes away pieces of their individual story, if that makes sense. That's it. I couldn't agree more. But I think naturalizing the term that American are the people who are associated with the people who won their battle to create a United States does more harm in erasing those differences than trying to really distinguish the fact that there's nothing natural about these people calling themselves America or that their United States of America is the thing we call American, right? And throughout all of these wars there's, um, and these revolutions, people are having to choose sides. Absolutely not all white people decide they want to go along with the U.S. It's not entirely, it's in fact probably not a very good way of describing things that African Americans who self-emancipate themselves and run away from their, their uh, enslavers are necessarily doing that because they like the British. They're engaged in their own war for independence and maybe have an alliance of convenience with the British Army. Um, or at least are seeing some possibility of aligning themselves with the British. Same thing for Native Americans. They're not really, very few of them love the British Empire, but their war for independence tends to coincide with the aims of the British Empire. Other Native Americans make the choice that they can ally with the United States and hope that's going to work out, right? So I'm thinking we're trying to maintain the three-way thing here, empires, settlers, and indigenous people, right? And that we need to be careful about assuming that settlers are all one thing, but also to give them a foreign-sounding name like Usonian to make them a little bit strange to us and something that has to be explained and talked about and deconstructed, not just naturalized. Thank you very much for that, because that really helped. I hope that helped clarify things a bit. So... Usonians, try it out. See what your students say. <laughs> I tried to use this in a book review once, and the editor just scratched it out. <laughs> but I use it with my students all the time. At least some of them start calling themselves Usonians, right? Because it's a lot easier to say than U.S. Americans. <laughs> I don't know, and it does get get to something, right? So. Let's try out Native Americans and Usonians' wars for independence, right? And again, I hope you're with me on this idea that there are at least two American wars for independence. At least two. There's many, many others. There's many other people from the settler population who are, have different aims for what they mean by independence. There's certainly a war for independence among African Americans or African peoples who see themselves as having the opportunity to achieve their independence by taking advantage of the chaos to self-emancipate. 
lots of wars for independence. We all, again, putting an S on the end of the word is often a very important way of thinking things through, right? But at least there are these native peoples and settler colonists, Usonians, learning to call themselves Usonians, learning us learning to call themselves Usonians, right? Uh, are engaged in two <coughs> parallel wars to maintain their independence or create their independence at the same time. So that's what I mean by at least two wars for independence, or perhaps two sets of American wars for independence. Native peoples and settler colonists are both engaged in these wars for independence at the same time. And in some respects, it all traces back to the Seven Years' War, the contest for the continent, a deep sense of betrayal by settler colonists who believe that the British Empire has turned their back on them by denying them the fruits of the conquest of the continent through the proclamation of 1763, not to mention the taxes they're imposing on them, not to mention many other things that are the central grievances of the Usonian Revolution. But that, again, the contests of the Seven Years' War echo and redound into creating um, the, the children of Pontiac's War, Native people trying to maintain and create their independence, and the sense of betrayal on the part of British settler colonists against the British Empire. The three-way way of an analyzing this, I think, helps us understand and redraw, rethink through the period we too easily call the period of the American Revolution. Okay. I've stunned the room into silence once again. So two sets of wars for interdependence. I also want to talk about three axes of interpretation for those two wars. Not those kind of axes. This kind of axis. This is so much like my college classrooms, I try to throw a joke out there and everybody laughs. <laughs> there is nothing funny about any of this story, but once in a while we have to try to at least inject a little bit of a note of irony or levity into it. What I mean by those axes of interpretation is we can, I think, talk about First off, an axis that has to do with causes of these wars for independence. We've already talked through some of that. And for both native peoples and proto-Usonians, the causes of their wars for independence are pretty similar. We talk often about the causes of events. The second axis of interpretation I want to talk about is the nature of the struggle. A lot of parallels there as well. The third axis of interpretation is something we might want to call, for lack of a better term, the object of the struggle. So what do I mean by those three things? Let's focus on the Usonians' wars for independence first. History teachers are used to thinking about causation in two ways. We talk about long-term causes and short-term causes. I think we've already been through some of this in my brief remarks earlier today. The long-term cause is the massive growth in British settler colonization in the early 18th century. Also, we could talk for the U.S. War for Independence, the maturation of the political systems those settler colonists have created, their legislatures, their sense of governing themselves, their developing sense that that sense that they own the land and that they govern themselves that this really is their America. Those are long-term developments that have 
developed over more than a century of English colonization in North America. The short-term causes, I think many historians would argue, and I've just argued a few minutes ago, trace back to the Seven Years' War, the war called Pontiacs, and the events of the 1750s and 1760s, and the transformation of the British Empire and the, and the three-way relationship between empires, settlers, and colonists that come after that war. So that all makes sense, right? We know what the axis of interpretation of causes are. And for any of the multiple peoples you're talking about, one would place their sense of what's causing them to act along either a long-term set of grievances, long-term set of developments, or very short-term kinds of things. For them, it may not be the proclamation of 1763. It may be the fact that some local landlord has kicked you off your land and this is your opportunity to get back on, you know, right? So thinking in terms of causation as a spectrum or a, an axis, right, might help us place various peoples and their decisions along the way. And I want to also stress that I think we are, can say it's exactly the same set of long and short-term causes, or at least the long-term causes, and the collective short-term causes that lead to Native Americans' wars for independence, they, too, are reacting to the large expansion of British settler colonization. They're trying to defend their land against the, the, uh, the English. Uh, they, too, are reacting to the events of the 1750s and 60s and the Seven Years' War. These same long-term causes are producing two different, multiple different ones, but certain, two different sets of American wars for independence. So what do I mean by the nature of the struggle? Here, let's go back to some classic ways that historians of white America have tried to explain the American Revolution. It's a famous phrase by the historian Carl Lotus Becker in his immensely boring book, but influential one written in 1909 called The History of the Political Parties in the Province of New York, who said this, the American Revolution was a result of two general movements, the contest for home rule and independence and the democratization of American politics and society. Of these movements, movements, the latter was fundamental. It began before the contest for home rule and was not completed until after the achievement of independence. And he famously said, there were two questions that were about equally prominent. The first was the question of home rule. The second was the question of who should rule at home. Home rule, who should rule at home? It's a war for independence, yes. But for Carl Becker and for most of us, I think, as history teachers and as historians, the far more interesting question is, once you achieve home rule, who gets to rule at home? Right? That's the real revolution. Who within the British settler population is going to be the people who are going to rule? Right? What kind of new way of thinking about political arrangements might be emerging? Or is it just the same old thing, meet the new boss, same as the old boss, right? But again, the far more interesting struggle is often between different groups trying to answer the question of who should rule at home rather than the question of home rule. So this is what I mean by the nature of the struggle. A spectrum of home rule on the one hand and who should rule at home on the other. following me? 
right? Again, the more interesting revolution is always the one about who should rule at home, not the slightly more easily answered question of home rule. Once we achieve independence, what does that mean? Who's going to set the terms for the new political order? Who's going to rule at home? Who's going to be making decisions? And there, too, an awful lot of individual people are making choices about who to ally with and what they're trying to achieve and what the nature of that new home rule is going to be. So what about the third axis, the object of the struggle? Here I want to go to another early 20th century, late 19th century historian, one who I would not, never otherwise quote and suggest that you read. But sometimes a racist historian is onto some truth, or at least is saying something out loud that otherwise we might not hear. Who am I talking about? Theodore Roosevelt, who among many other things, of course, was an historian. He wrote this great multi-volume work called The Winning of the West, a settler colonial title if there ever was one, right? And he, too, talked about two American revolutions, or we would say two Usonian revolutions. The revolution is twofold character, he said, making on the part of Americans a struggle for independence in the East and in the West a war of conquest, or rather a war to establish on behalf of all our people the right of entry into the fertile and vacant regions beyond the Alleghenies fertile and vacant regions beyond the Alleghenies. He's already erased native people, except that he has to explain that, in fact, you do have to fight native people to get into that vacant and fertile region west of the Appalachians, right? And here's where it really gets racist but reveals something important. The most ultimately righteous of all wars is a war with savages, although it's apt to be also the most terrible and inhuman. The rude, fierce settler who drives the savage from the land lays all civilized mankind under a debt to him. It is of incalculable importance that America, Australia, and Siberia should pass out of the hands of the red, black, and yellow aboriginal owners and become the heritage of the dominant world races. Don't put this in front of your students directly or at least make them think about it before they read it. But again, he's saying it in the most stark terms. This is all about white people claiming the land that belongs to them. I would argue the settlers want to be the imperial power, and their struggle against Great Britain is to make them in charge, not Great Britain. But Great Britain is an imperialist. Absolutely. So, and so my idea is. Why not invoke that language? Why not invoke the ideas of it's, it's imperialist, racist? What's, the, what's, the, what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that, except that we have two imperial, we have the settlers are actually battling the existing imperial power in order to replace them as the imperial power on the continent. And because, again, back to our three way struggle. What the British Empire has haltingly and absolutely racistly been trying to do is to mediate between the native people whose lands they have reserved for themselves and the settler colonists, right? So this is the settler colonist perspective, right? 
who then come to see themselves as the great imperial civilizing power, right, as opposed to the namby-pamby empire that believes you need to protect native people at least once in a while from settler colonists. Yes. Okay. This also reflected in the fact that the United States entered the international imperialist game later because they were doing the imperialism internally. Internally is such a Usonian word. <laughs> Native peoples would not say this is a struggle over that is internally, right? The imperial contest is for control of the continent, which is what, again, Theodore Roosevelt got it. And he said it in the most stark and revealing terms. There's two revolutions going on. One is a struggle for independence. The other is a war of conquest. So that's what I mean by three axes of interpretation for the Usonian Revolution, right? We can point to the long and short-term causes, and we can think about a variety of people situating themselves along that spectrum. We can talk about this nature of the struggle between who should rule at home and home rule. It might be interesting if you want to think about individual stories how you'd place them in the graph of what their position is on home rule as opposed to who should rule at home, whether that comes out of a short-term set of circumstances or a long-term development culturally, right? And then to make it three-dimensional, this other thing about the spectrum between a war for independence and a war of conquest. Or we might want to replace those words with liberty and land. This land is the object of much of this controversy. The object of the struggle is who's going to control the land and whose definition of what it means to be liberty and free and independent is going to prevail. And here, too, it's not as simple as settler colonists replacing indigenous people. The who should rule at home question comes in there. Which particular settler colonists are going to control this land that everybody's struggling over? Yes. Apparently, I can't. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> well, uh, if, if I can go off memory, I wonder if the object of this struggle um, also contains within it a sort of bifurcation of the subject of the struggle, because mm -hmm. in that previous quote from Teddy Roosevelt, the advancement of civilized men. The ruling class, as I read it, mm -hmm. is predicated upon the labors of the fierce rude men. Right. And so even within that imperative that he's putting out, there's a tension embedded. Which is why I put these all things on a spectrum, which is a different way of saying there's tensions involved. And that these things, while they may appear to be ways of using a three-part model to oversimplify what's going on, they actually allow us to think in very complicated ways about what this means and to think through what somebody like Theodore Roosevelt is saying and to think through what somebody like John Dickinson is saying, think through something somebody like Thomas Jefferson is saying. Right? Where are these mixes of factors figuring in to their view of what they think they're trying to create in the US in this period? Yes? I 
I see how these three axes are uh, used in terms of the three groups we're talking about, European empires, native peoples, and um, settler, settlers. But this is, if we look at just one of them, let's say settler colonists, couldn't this also be their narrative in the sense that, you know, every history book that I've read that doesn't take this kind of consideration that we're taking in this class, you know, our story is independence to conquest, 1776, 1890. So instead of it being a spectrum, it's just a continuous line. Not That's continuous, true. but certainly yeah. a connective line. But my point would be that independence and conquest always go together. It's not from independence to conquest. It's that the definition of independence for settler colonists is conquest. Right. I would agree, too, and I think our history books have celebrated that. Right. Because we say, fantastic, 1776, we kicked out the British and we achieved independence. And by 1890, we conquered the West. Two ways of complicating that. We, who is this we? Usonians kicked out the British and in their own mind kicked out the Indians in 1776, well, 1783, not to put too fine a point on it, right? And that process continues down to the 1890s and continues on a global stage from that time forward, perhaps continues right through the period of Manifest Destiny in which Usonian leaders are always having their eyes on both native peoples and the British Empire. Right. The other way of complicating this is to keep telling the story that there's two sets of revolutions going on and that for native people too, the same set of long-term causes is producing the same kind of nature of the struggle and producing the same kind of struggle over liberty and land and independence. And ultimately those two revolutions can't coexist because they're fundamentally products of the same historical circumstances but utterly incompatible on their goals because one person needs to get that land and the other people need to lose it. Can you give me a date or a thought when the idea of the Indians are completely conquered uh, for the 1890 was? The idea? or the historical reality, right? Historical reality. I would hope the historical reality is never. Okay. Although um, certainly the balance of power shifts in major ways. In right? terms of when the United States government, the president could sit down and say, it's time to change policy, the warring period, the conflict period of military entanglement. Yes, please help us out. 1890, that this U.S. census says that the frontier is closed, and that we there is no frontier anymore. Yeah. No We've hit the West, the entire the country. What? The turn. The turn. Right. 
here's what I'd say is that there, that's why I distinguish between the idea and the historical reality. The historical reality is always complicated, and we all know that while the, the um, settler colonial political regime becomes triumphant over time, that native people themselves are not really conquered, right? That, 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 that's, that's an ideological construct. But there are various points when you can say that both imperial and settler colonist fantasies think they have actually done the job. And one of those points was 1763, where the British thought they'd conquered the empire and then suddenly have a war on their hands from native people who see things quite differently. Right? Another point where that happens is about 1783, when the United States comes to the same erroneous conclusion. All of this territory now belongs to us because we've got the Treaty of Paris that says it does. And unsurprisingly, the United States finds itself with a major set of wars on its hand by native people who are rebelling against that idea. Or maybe even rebelling is not the best word because that implies some sort of sense of that regime being legitimate. We're simply making war against an expansive power that's claiming these territories. We could point to various other points, Jacksonian removal. We could point to the end of the treaty era and the Civil War era. We could point to 1890. We could point to the termination policies of the 1950s, right? So here again, there are settler colonists are always trying to convince themselves they really do control things, and the land really does belong to them, and that America is the U.S. And one way of thinking about American history is that that's always a challenged concept, always an ideological construct, and one we need to think through and talk about how people uh, resist those interpretations and also why they em embrace those interpretations. Yes? Um, this is sort of in, in the nature of a comment, and I'm just interested in your response. But um, that Roosevelt quote, it's just such an impactful thing. Um, and it almost seems to me like it's the Usonians adopting the imperial narrative and taking it over. Right. So the imperial, the empire doesn't have a narrative anymore because they've lost it to the Usonians who have kind of turned it into something that they own now. Does that make sense? John Adams famously asked the question several times in his old age, what do we mean by the American Revolution? This is absolutely not the answer that he would have come up with. But I might say the answer to John Adams' question is just what you said. How did Usonians come to think that they are the great imperial power and, in fact, erase empires and native people from their ideological landscape? Now, that's vastly oversimplified. Not everybody sees it that way. But that is a narrative one could tell about this period, right, and about much of U.S. history. All right, very briefly, I want to talk about how we might begin to think about these same three-axis model applying to Native peoples. Much of it is very clear, I think, already, right? Same basic historical causes, same basic historical events are leading to Native people having to engage in their series of wars for independence at the same time that settler colonists are doing it, right? 
always within the three-part framework of the British Empire being up there, but during the period of these wars for independence, certainly the French and the Spanish empires get back involved with that odd alliance between the French Empire and the settler colonists, and the Spanish always trying to figure out how they can get back in the game somehow as well, right? But in any event, certainly the same short-term causes. The object of the struggle is in many respects also pretty obvious. Everybody's fighting over liberty, independence, and who gets to control the land, right? And that's the one that's incompatible. Somebody's going to win that war for independence. Somebody's going to lose it. Except that, of course, no one ever clearly wins and loses because Native people continue to control their independence and land somewhere in different places, with, even within the regime that the United States claims, right? But I also want to think about how we might apply this idea of home rule and who should rule at home to Native Americans' revolutions in this period as well. Because this is a period of great political change among Native peoples, some of which is familiar to us and some of which isn't. I think many of us know that the Cherokees, for instance, during the period of the long American Revolution, are reinventing their government. They're establishing courts. They're changing their gender relations. Ultimately, by the 1820s, they've come up with a written constitution, right? All of which is interesting to put in parallel with what Usonians are doing, moving through the Articles of Confederation to redefining what republicanism means, to creating the United States, to thinking through all kinds of questions over not just who should rule at home, but how should we rule at home, right? It's a relatively familiar story, I hope, that we could at least point to the Cherokee people and say they're having that same debate over who should rule at home, how should they rule at home, how we're going to recreate a political system in this new world of trying to preserve our independence. It's maybe a slightly less familiar story that the Haudenosaunee or Iroquois people have their own civil war in many respects around this period and have to reinvent themselves as the Six Nations of the Haudenosaunee in the late 18th, early 19th century, doing so in various locations, but most profoundly in what we today call Canada. Right? Again, that's a, it's perhaps useful to think about that as a Haudenosaunee parallel to moving from the Articles of Confederation to the U.S. Constitution, right? Reinventing the nature of their political system after a very divisive civil war, which is what the Usonians went through as well. And I think we would point to a lot of different parallel kinds of developments throughout Eastern North America. But there's another thing that's involved with this struggle over who should rule at home as well. And this goes back as well to the period of the war called Pontiacs. During that period, Native American political and spiritual leaders began to really develop the idea that all Native peoples have to unite in a common cause against their common enemy, whether that's the British Empire or the settler colonists. That was very controversial in 1763. That debate continues throughout the period we call the Wars for Independence, as various Native leaders are trying to create larger confederacies, get Native groups to get together and put aside their common enmities to aim their energies against a common enemy. This is always controversial and sets up a tension which is still there today in Native history between people who identify 
with pan-Indianism and those who identify with tribalism. And note also that's just like all these other spectrums, people are sharing both opinions at the same time in a different context, different ways, right? So just like there's that famous Ben Franklin cartoon, Unite or Die, the snake that's divided up into different kinds of different colonies. Again, we can see native people in this period making the same argument, maybe even with the same metaphor, unite or die, right? And that the struggle there is also over who should rule at home through this struggle for independence. So I hope it might be at least useful to think once in a while about these questions, that if we have a kind of way of thinking about one set of American wars for independence, we can also talk about a variety of those wars and complicate our narratives about how all that works and get our students to think about a genuinely much more comprehensive and multivalent way of thinking about this period. So again, for Native people too, I think Carl Becker's question, it would never occur to Carl Becker that this applied to Native Americans. But I think it's just as true for Native peoples throughout this period as it is for Usonians, that there's the dual struggle between home rule and who should rule at home. And that's a one way to think about a narrative of Native American history in this period as we think about Native people trying to figure out how to conduct their wars for independence and invariably also involves a question of who should rule at home and why and how. Okay, finally. Do we really want to collapse our three axes of interpretation into one? That for everybody in this period, land is the key to liberty? And it really is finally putting together Becker and Roosevelt. We have a, con a set of cons conflicts over the question of how does one achieve liberty through control of the land, a, a struggle for the continent that involves struggles over who is going to become free people. Independence, land, and liberty all go together. And to get back to your point earlier, that is a narrative that we would hear, right? Daniel Boone with his coon skin cap is fighting for liberty by conquering the land, right? But let's think about that as something that goes in multiple directions, that involves all these different kinds of contests we've talked about, and that also involves very practical ways in which the control of land is the key to the political regimes that people are creating. Here's a picture we've all seen in our textbooks. The Northwest Ordinance, which lays out this nice gridded landscape in where? The Ohio country, the place people have been fighting over for generations or two. I always like to point out to my students, we know now why Midwesterners are square. I'm looking at you, kid. <laughs> 
But how many times do we think about this, which is so crucial in our traditional stories, if we ever tell a story of the Northwest Ordinance anymore? I don't know how many of you get a chance to teach about it, right? What an amazing assertion of settler colonial ideology the Northwest Ordinance is. We can just completely rearrange the landscape, put it in nice square townships, and pretend that Native people aren't there. The Articles of Confederation is often described as their greatest achievement under the Articles of Confederation is this uh, agreement among the various states to cede their Western land claims to the United States as a whole and to cede them under the terms of this vision of the Northwest Ordinances, which creates a way in which you're going to create new states and organize settler populations through orderly processes of putting people on square plots of land that erase whatever landscape was there before. That very act that is so crucial to the creation of the United States is an aggressive colonial settler assertion of authority over this territory, particularly since it all takes place before they've actually even tried to have treaties with native people to gain that land. The Northwest Ordinance exists before the United States actually has possession of that landscape under anybody's definitions. And not just that land, but that land is crucial to the finances, or at least the vision of the finances that the United States and the various states have for how they're going to create stability and political order and solve the question of who should rule at home. It's almost like that's what they wanted the British to do after the Seven War. Exactly. They just try to do it anyway, right? This is what many Usonians, who didn't know there were Usonians in 1763, right, had wished had happened after the Seven Years' War, right? And one of their big grievances against the British Empire is that they've been prevented from doing this thing, at least temporarily, right? Richard Henry Lee, on the impact of the passage of the Northwest Ordinance on the financial situation of the states, these republics may soon be discharged from oppression and distress, by which he meant the key to getting out from under our war debts is to sell this Western land to settlers and generate income from it and solve our financial problems. This is another thing that goes back to 1763. The British Empire had a huge financial problems of debts from the wars. The United States finds itself in the same situation. And at least there's a fantasy that acquiring this Western land and selling it to new colonists is going to be the way in which money will be generated to pay off war debts, solve the financial problems of the states. Historians have been looking into this in recent years, and it never works out quite the way people like Richard Henry Lee envisioned it. But this was very much part of what they were thinking, right? So the Western land claims put a stress on claims, right? The Northwest Ordinance, crucial to the creation of the United States in many respects, is also in the minds of people who are creating that system crucial to the future of the United States in terms of solving its financial problems as well. And we can actually see various states doing this. So again, think about the Northwest Ordinance in perhaps slightly different and less optimistic terms than they're usually created. Erasing Native people from the landscape, 
basing the nature of the future of the United States on acquiring that land and revisioning it as square townships full of square people who are good Usonian folks, whose land this justly is. If we were to spend hours, which we won't, looking at a timeline, figuring out when they actually tried to have treaties with Native people to acquire this land, it all happens for the most part after the Northwest Ordinance has already been passed and the land has already been envisioned as part of the United States. So as we think about other abstract maps, Indian removal, land sessions, how the United States got possession of these lands, all of this is central to the goals of the American Revolution, I would argue. The American Revolution, as much as anything, is about acquiring control, not just of home rule, but of home rule over this native land in the continental interior. The states are doing the same thing. Here's a map of Pennsylvania. Note that in 1784-85, Pennsylvania expropriates from native people through sort of fraudulent treaties. This vast area in the northwest corner of what is today the state, an area that John Dickinson, who was president of the Supreme Council of Pennsylvania, interestingly described as within the acknowledged boundaries of this state. Within the acknowledged boundaries of this state. Who acknowledged it? Well, he did, <laughs> right? And here, again, if the vision of the Paxton boys was the exclusion of Native people from Pennsylvania, that is achieved in 1783-85 when all of the land, at least in theory, is expropriated from Native Americans. And in fact, in fact, the vast majority of Native people are excluded from that territory. And not just excluded from that territory, but done in particular ways. The vision is that's exactly the same plot of land we're talking about here. The Pennsylvania government divided that up into two sets of lands they called the donation lands and the depreciation lands. All sounds very bureaucratic, right? This was a way to pay off Revolutionary War soldiers. That dark blue area was going to be set aside as lands to be donated to, settler, to, to settlers, yes, but to soldiers in lieu of their back pay. And they came up with a, a system in which Veterans were given certificates that say it's worth so much land in that donation land area. Now, as it often happens in this period, speculators buy up all those depreciation certificates. The, set, the soldiers never really settle on it. But that's, the, again, when we talk about states settling their financial affairs through the acquisition of native lands, you know, they're paying off their debt to their soldiers through the land that they've just expropriated from native people. The depreciation lands, can you figure out what that might mean in this context? Money is not worth a continental and all that kind of stuff. Sell off that land and use the proceeds to pay off the war debt, or the actual the monetary war debt? No? Well, actually, they're doing some of that too, but the depreciation lands are to make up for the fact that soldiers have been paid in depreciated currency. And they'll get land grants there too to make up for the fact that the money they were paid is no good. Right, so again, the financial implications of this for states 
we're just beginning to understand, I think, as historians. And it's always complicated, as it always is, but at least there's this vision that acquiring native land is going to not just be the way in which settlers will civilize the continent, but also the way in which the states will get out from under their crippling war debts and their financial problems in this period. As Boundaries of Pennsylvania become defined, finally. There they are. 1789 complete. That's the um, purchase of the Erie Triangle. When they discovered, whoops, we have no access to the Great Lakes, and so they had to get this little triangle of land to get access to the Great Lakes. But the real key is 1784-85, where a third of what is today Pennsylvania is acquired. Yes? Is it who rules at home dependent upon making sure that this land goes to the people that fought the war, though? Because if they don't give them that land, they're back into another revolution. Exactly. Again, thinking through who should rule at home, what does this mean? And what does it mean that the most of this land actually wound up in the hands of rich speculators, not the actual soldiers who were supposed to be being rewarded? Although I guess they got something for it. They sold their certificate to a speculator at some point, right? Again, yes, perfect point there, that this whole thing goes back to the question of who should rule at home, who's going to control the distribution of these lands, who's going to profit from making the states profit from the land, right? One last way to think about this comes from New York and the work of Alan Taylor. This is what we continue to call Haudenosaunee territory, but this massive expropriation of Iroquois territory after the U.S. Revolution is important. And and New York, remember, or no, maybe you don't remember this, treated most of this land, again, it made some sense in their minds, as land conquered from the Haudenosaunee because the Haudenosaunee had sided with the British. They'd actually been forced out of that territory. But there's the inconvenient story of the Oneidas, who actually sided with the United States, one of the Haudenosaunee nations. And they wind up being treated almost exactly like the other members of the Haudenosaunee. Their land is expropriated, too, by the, by the New York state government, which is selling off that land to pay its own debts. And here's a chart which shows just how much of revenue is coming in from selling settler colonists land recently expropriated from Native Americans through the period after the American Revolution, particularly in the 1795, generating a surplus of $114,799.23 from selling this land to their own colonists. That was a lot of money in 1795. Right? And again, I think if you look through many of the state governments in this period, the degree to which land expropriated from Native Americans as part of the American revolutionary process uh, becomes crucial to the finances of these states. And we certainly know throughout U.S. history how important those Western lands are to the finances and to the structure of the United States government throughout this period. So we're back to the question of 
land and liberty and what that means. And I hope that it's useful to be thinking in terms of these two sets of American revolutions, American Wars for Independence, and seeing both of them as mapped out on these three spectrums of different ways of thinking about what those wars for independence were about. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.